Welcome to Access Reality. This is Ali Kadili. We have with us Dr. Tristram Wyatt, who is a British evolutionary biologist. Uh, he's a senior research fellow at the Department of Zoology, University of Oxford. And his most recent textbook is Animal Behavior, a very short introduction. He gave a very interesting TED talk in 2015 entitled The Smelly Mystery of Human Pheromones, which got more than a million and a half views, I believe. So welcome, Dr. Uh, Tristram. Thank you very much for making the time today. Great, a pleasure to be here. So are pheromones present in all animal species? Almost all animals that have been investigated so far do seem to have pheromones. And that goes from worms, fish, salamanders, and of course- the marine animals. Yep. And the only exceptions so far um, are whales and dolphins, which like most aquatic mammals, uh, seem to have a very reduced sense of smell but it's still possible that they have them, but none have been found so far. And is the effect of pheromones equally pervasive throughout the species where it's been found? Does it have an equally important effect? It probably does vary between species and between different kinds of animal. I suppose something to remember is that pheromones, which are these invisible chemical signals between members of the same species, provide all sorts of information, all sorts of different kinds of signals. So the most famous ones are sex pheromones uh, given off by males to attract females or females to attract males. And the very first one to be identified uh, was the female sex pheromone in the silk moth. And that was back in 1959. Pheromones are also used in all sorts of other different contexts. So in rabbits, a French team uh, identified a mammary pheromone that's produced by the mother given off in her milk. And it's that pheromone which allows the rabbit pups, the baby rabbits, to find the nipple. And that's really important because baby rabbits only have a few minutes a day to suckle from their mother. So what I'm really saying is that pheromones are used across the animal kingdom, but in different species, they're used in different ways. And it's a, an amazing system for communication. Is the number one function still uh, mate attraction in all animal species, despite other secondary kind of roles or uses? Uh, not necessarily. And I think that's actually one of the interesting challenges that if you were starting to look at a, a new species uh, from scratch, the first thing you do would be to see which behaviors were influenced apparently by smell. So for example, in goats, it's been known way back to the ancients that male goats in the breeding season get very smelly. And Darwin was one of many people who noticed this. And in his book on sexual selection, he wrote about smelly mammals. Now that's the starting point. When females appear to be attracted to male goats by their smell, and male goats get smelly in the breeding season, as Darwin noted, that gives you the start to investigate possible communication. And there have been various teams in France and in Australia looking at this, but it was a Japanese team that in 2016, identified the molecules that the male goat is giving off that affect the female. And in this case, it's not so much attraction, it actually sets off her hormones and brings her into egg production. So over the dry summer, 
she shuts down uh, ovulation, uh, producing eggs. But when she smells the smells coming from the male in the autumn, that sends her hormones uh, going and she starts to produce eggs and she's ready to mate. So in that case, that's a kind of pheromone that we call a primer pheromone. But all of that starts by an observation that something to do with behavior or physiology is affected by smell. And then that is the way in to investigating whether a pheromone might be involved. Do you believe these animals are actually consciously aware of a smell or is it just impacting them on a subconscious level, like the way humans would be impacted by pheromones? Or is that impossible uh, to tell? <laughs> it's impossible to tell. That's a whole area that you could debate for, for some weeks about uh, the, the level of consciousness. We really don't know how conscious animals are of stimuli. We don't know whether first um, humans really do have pheromones and also whether we should expect them to be consciously... I ask that because, you, yeah, because you, uh, you had said smelly pheromones and as you said, Darwin mentioned smell, smelly goats. Mm. So I'm just wondering, is that something that is actually we can perceive or is it something... You know? It's a matter of coincidence. So male goats are very smelly. What we recognize as the goat smell is not necessarily the smell, the molecule that's important for attracting females or having that primer effect. Just another characteristic that they have. It's just another characteristic, but it's what we can sense is simply a matter of our adapted olfactory system and the receptors and the molecules to which we're sensitive. And there's actually a nice story. Um, there's a long time back in the 19th century, a French uh, naturalist, you may well know, uh, Jean-Henri Fabre, and uh, his books are available long out of copyright on the web. Now, he has an, a lovely account of uh, having some pupae of the peacock, peacock emperor moth in his study in Provence in the south of France. And when the females emerge from their pupae, through the open window, male moths fly in, attracted by their scent, by the female scent. So with his son, he attempts some simple experiments. So this is, he's writing in about 1870, and it's probably about 1860 that he's doing these simple experiments. So the males are flying in through the open window on a warm summer evening. And they're finding the female. So the first thing he does is try to cover the female with a sieve, with a, a colander. And the males have no difficulty in finding the female. So if it's open to air, the males can find the female. He puts the female under a glass jar and the males can't find the female. So he says, ah, I'm blocking the airflow. And then he takes the cotton wool that the female has been resting on and the males are attracted to the cotton wool. So he makes the logical conclusion that it must be all happening by the sense of smell. You can block it with a glass jar that's sealed. They go for the cotton wool that she's been resting on. But then he makes a fatal mistake because he sniffs the female and says, I can't smell anything. 
And he concludes it can't be the sense of smell, even though all the other evidence is pointing in that direction. And so it's an example of where the male moths of that species are incredibly sensitive to the pheromone, the smell that the female is giving off, but we're not. So he was equating his own sense of smell or his prowess in smelling to that of moths? Yeah, of that particular species. Oh. And that's a mistake not to make. Yes. So if only he'd had the imagination to, if he was thinking about bats, we can't hear bat calls, but bats are nonetheless using those ultrasonic sounds to navigate uh, around and to find their prey. In the same way, the male moths were very sensitive to the particular molecules that the females were giving off but they're not molecules that we're sensitive to. Yeah. Now, do we know um, exactly to what extent uh, pheromones are a factor in human interactions? Well, at the moment, we don't. And it's a fascinating area. If you put pheromones into a web search, uh, you'll come up with hundreds of people trying to sell you um, yes. what they claim to be human pheromones. Yeah. And there's a lot of scientific interest, or rather a scientific literature that is built around the molecules that are claimed to be pheromones. That's something I explore in the talk that I gave as a TEDx talk that you kindly mentioned. I can take it a bit further now. So I've got a paper coming out uh, later this month where I'm looking at about 60 studies that have been published by scientists of good repute in perfectly respectable journals. But sadly, if you trace back those molecules back to the starting point, um, you find that there really isn't anything there of what we might call the ground zero. So in 1991, two scientists who had set up a corporation had patented a couple of molecules. One was androstadieno, and the other was estratetraenol. And these were respectively the male and female pheromone. Well, that's what they claimed. But in the paper that they used to establish or claim that these molecules were pheromones, there basically was nothing there. It didn't tell you how they bound the molecules. It didn't tell you how they distinguished these molecules from the probably hundreds, perhaps thousands of molecules that humans give off. There was no evidence whatsoever. There was just a very simple test using about uh, 20 people, testing what they thought the effects might be. And they were even doing something slightly weirder, which was claiming to record from a part of the nose that we actually simply don't have. Now, mice have this second nose, we don't. But they claimed that they recorded from what they called the human vomeronasal organ, which is a second nose that mice have, but it's turned out humans almost certainly don't have in active form. So what happened was they published a paper, and this was 1991, and it might have disappeared. But in 2000, a famous researcher called McClintock used these two molecules, and the only reason they used these molecules was because of the 1991 paper. And they claimed to have found an effect on human psychology. It affected mood. 
Now in that 2000 paper, they were really quite cautious because they said, well, it's very early days, we can't be sure. But what's happened in those years since 2000, in about the 20 years or so, is that some 60 or so researchers have published studies that use these two molecules and claim all sorts of effects. And with that body of literature, you might think, well, there's a really strong story here. But what I think may be happening is something slightly different. And it's something that's been affecting psychology across the board. And I don't know if your listeners have come across the reproducibility crisis in psychology. Mm -hmm. So this is, which is something that's, it's not just psychology, it's actually across the life sciences in general. What's been happening, and it's probably about 30 years now, perhaps longer, there's been increasing pressure on scientists to produce exciting results. So we're in a battle for attention in the media, attention from grant-giving bodies to give us the money to do our research. And so what's happened is that good researchers are, I guess, starting to make claims that are stronger and stronger. So basically, we only publish things that we think are really exciting. And we've actually really absorbed the idea that unless something is super exciting, it's not worth publishing. What this has led to is, firstly, what we call positive publication bias. A bit of a tongue tongue twister. So we only publish results when we get a significant effect that is exciting. And that will attract the editor's attention and it'll get published in a big name journal. So what we have is positive publication bias. But in finding positive results, one proposal was that this was simply that we would only publish the results that were significant. And the studies that didn't find anything interesting would never get published. And there was the idea of the file draw. So they would disappear into the filing cabinet, like the one you can see behind me. And they'd never reach the light of day. But some other psychologists have recently suggested it's actually worse than that. So it's not that studies don't get published. It's that they're analysed and reanalysed until significant results are found. So that's something that can happen subconsciously. It can happen because basically we have a strong attraction to interesting stories. It's what really excites scientists because scientists are human and scientists are wonderful storytellers like every human being. So what happens is they look for any possible story and when they find a story, they think, ah, that's what we were looking for. Even that wasn't really the case. Exactly. So basically what's happening is it's a post hoc exercise. It's after the event. And we then pretend that that was what we were looking for. So what these researchers have suggested is it's actually every study that gets published now the result of that kind of detailed search to find anything, even if it wasn't what we were looking for. So you were alluding to that the fact that the evidence really is not there for role of pheromones in human interactions. 
So would you say then that these products commercially sold online that promise to attract females don't work? It's highly unlikely that they work. <laughs> so there's just no shortcut in life, eh? Sadly not, but the placebo effect could be strong. So if you've spent $50, then you might go to the party... More confident? With more confidence. And that will attract them, the confidence, not the fear. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Great. So it might work after all, then? Uh, yes, but you could be wearing anything. Yeah, but unfortunately now, not to anybody listening to this conversation. No. <laughs> all right, just moving on to a bit of a different topic. Uh, you've yes, described sure. before how birds when you have thousands or hundreds of thousands of birds, when they uh, move in unison in specific patterns, it looks like one organism, it looks like highly coordinated. And it's been kind of looked at, it's boiled down to each bird takes the cue from the surrounding seven or so birds. Uh, yep. And that's how they get to do that. Um, but uh, then the question is, is all group behavior and animals instinctual, automatic, pre-programmed, or is there room for you know, actual individual improvisation? Ooh, um, that's a really interesting question. I think those murmurations uh, of birds that seem to, the murmurations, those big flocks of birds that seem to move as one, they're doing it so fast that really that must be happening or we can imagine it happening without requiring conscious thought. Yes. Although we don't know in general in, in animals um, how much of their um, behavior is is actually conscious. But in terms of individual behavior, yes, we do know that animals uh, are very much individuals. And in another context, even those same birds, for example, starlings in a big flock, uh, in those murmurations, in another context, they will be behaving as individuals. If they're courting another individual uh, to become a mate, all the behaviors in terms of social interactions, if they're territorial at any stage, guarding their nests and so forth. Those are all very much individual behaviors. There's a whole area devoted to the idea of animal personalities, suggesting that some animals of the same species may be more timid or bold. And that can be related partly to genetics, but also partly to their experience, uh, their position in the hierarchy, uh, and so forth. So, yes, there's certainly a role for individual effects on uh, the behavior of animals. Yeah. We do see, though, that a lot of it is dominated by instinct and what seems to be pre-programmed behavior. But, you know, one might argue you see that more in the wild, although I'm not sure. So my question is, is there a difference in terms of the observed animal behavior is there a difference in consciousness from wild animals to farmed animals to domesticated pets? I've no idea in terms of consciousness, but in terms of uh, behaviors, there is a strong relationship between the behaviors that uh, domesticated animals show and their wild ancestors. So whether you're thinking about the hunting behavior of the domesticated cat or the behavior of dogs. So many of those behaviors can be seen in their wild counterparts. What happens during the process of domestication is of course very interesting. So behaviors that increase the likelihood that the domesticated uh, animal and us will get on and 
have a, an amicable relationship uh, are selected for. So dogs that bite, if you can think back to the wolf ancestor, um, those wolf ancestors wouldn't have been kept as part of the human uh, family, as it were, and become domesticated. So what you get in domestication is selection for behaviours that allow the animals to fit in with our own uh, family groups and our own behaviour. And dogs provide some very interesting examples of the way that different breeds have had different behaviours selected for. So classically, the dogs that are selected by shepherds to guard flocks of sheep learn how to uh, interact uh, well with sheep, but don't uh, bite them. They might only nip, but they don't eat the sheep. They don't treat them as prey. But famously in some uh, shepherds' breeds, uh, the dogs become very aggressive towards potential predators and indeed protect the flock. And then there are other dog breeds that have, have been selected by hunters to point in the direction of birds that have been shot by the hunter so the hunter can uh, go to find the bird. Or in the case of retrievers, the dog has been selected for behaviours that allow it to find the downed bird and bring it back to the hunter. So lots of different kinds of behaviours have been selected for. And what instinct really means is behaviour that doesn't seem to need any particular kind of learning. So the animal doesn't need to be taught the behaviour. But instinctive doesn't mean that it happens in a vacuum. So in the case of hunting behaviour, to show the full range of behaviours, a kitten probably needs to play at some of those hunting behaviours and perhaps be shown some hunting behaviours by its mother and father before it can hunt properly. So just to say something is instinctive doesn't mean that the animal has no element of learning. It just means that usually in an animal that grows up normally uh, with its parents, if that's required, will show those behaviours as an adult. All right. So um, what I take from this then is that the differences grossly that you see between uh, domesticated animals and wild animals could be explained by genetic selection um, over different generations to breed for certain traits. And that could explain the difference between the two groups rather than some difference in some other quality like consciousness or something else. I think you're spot on. Yes, it's, it's all about hundreds and thousands of generations of selection. And of course, Darwin um, used uh, selection by animal breeders as one of his examples by analogy with what might be happening with natural selection. So you may remember that he was very keen to use the different breeds of pigeon as selected for by pigeon fanciers in the 19th century. And he pointed out the amazingly different shapes that breeders had selected, but also their very different behaviours. And he was showing that human selection alone could lead to dramatic effects, and that these 
different selected breeds would breed true. In other words, it had a genetic basis. Now, moving on to a different subject, um, mm. um, it's been shown that dolphins have a larger brain to body mass ratio than humans. And some people have jumped to the conclusion based on that, that dolphins are smarter than humans. Do you subscribe to that notion? Uh, well, it's a really interesting idea. One of the problems of describing animals as smart and trying to put it um, as being smarter or less smart than dolphins or elephants or, or other kinds of animal is that it really does depend how you describe smart. So dolphins uh, can certainly learn things. They are very good uh, using their sonar at navigating, at finding their prey, and communicating with each other using this very complex set of clicks and other sounds. So we can say that they're certainly very smart. Where it becomes hard to compare animals is that everything is in the context of the life that they lead. So there are extraordinary feats of memory by the birds that hide acorns or pine nuts uh, thinking of some of the jays and other uh, members of that jay family and uh, other corvids. Like crows and, and uh, ravens and uh, those types. Yes, and many of them show extraordinary abilities to hide caches, C-A-C-H-E-S, uh, hidden stores of food, and then find those food sources anything up to months later. And there are wonderful um, experiments done showing that these birds can remember the location of thousands of different stores of food scattered over the forest over tens of hectares. And it's something that we simply would not be able to do. So in that sense, the birds are smarter than us. But it's a particular kind of smart. And so I think when thinking about animal cognition, animal thinking, when we're comparing intelligence or smartness, it really has to be in the context of the animal's world. And we're good at particular kinds of reasoning and imagination. So we're smart in those ways. But we fall well behind other animals when doing what natural selection has selected them to do. I see. That's a very um, kind of interesting uh, answer, which I think is close to the truth. I, um, where I was going with this was that if some animals have been demonstrated to be even close or anywhere in the vicinity of the intelligence of humans, we see a massive difference in sense of with humans, we've created civilizations, uh, submarines, space rockets, laws, philosophy and you know basically dolphins are just sitting there swimming in the sea so how do we uh, how can we even compare or are we just on totally different wavelengths in terms of what each species is trying to do or thinking of i think probably um on different wavelengths it, there is a long history of human exceptionalism so all sorts of things have been proposed as a kind of dividing line between 
other animals and humans. And whether it's been language or consciousness or tool making or ability to think into the future, each one of these has been challenged by one animal or one kind of experiment or another. So for a long time, for example, it was thought that only humans made tools. And you'll be aware, and your listeners will be aware of many examples of tool use, particularly in animals like chimpanzees. And it turns out it's not just chimpanzees, it's lots of other primates. But it's not just primates, it's uh, some of those crows, again, that use sticks and can even bend a wire to uh, reach a particular food item that's out of reach. So there are lots of examples. Even ants some of that tool use certainly improves. Hmm? Sorry, I was just yep. going to say, there's even evidence that in insects that this occurs also. Yes, there's extraordinary things with bumblebees. Um, last Chikta, Chikka at uh, Queen Mary University in London has done amazing experiments with bumblebees that look as though they're using tools to pull threads to bring uh, a ball towards them. And a lot of it comes down to designing ex an experiment that allows animals to show what they can do. So tool use uh, is no longer uh, an exclusively human uh, activity or ability. Culture, too, the idea of transmitting ideas or behaviours from one generation to the next. In the case of chimpanzees, uh, that's transmitted between the generations by observation. They're not very good at it. And the behaviours such as tool use to break open nuts or to uh, pick up termites uh, are relatively simple. And that's partly because they don't have the ability to express more abstract concepts in language, which gives us a huge advantage. But tool use and culture uh, certainly occurs in other species. But so if, if we I think where we're left at the moment is there does seem to be something special about the way that we use language. Yeah, so I was just going to say, if we agreed that there were certain criteria needed to form you know, a civilization or technology, like passing a certain intelligence threshold, as you mentioned, dexterity, opposable thumbs, creating tools, language, social cohesion. I mean, if you found an animal that can meet all of these criteria, yet still, like, for example, maybe octopuses, maybe orangutans, yet still there seems to be a massive void, a gap there between them and humans. Um, yes, we do seem to have um, an extraordinary combination of abilities. And we may not be as smart as some of those corvids, but we're able to use our intelligence in different ways. And I think one of the things that I discuss in um, chapter four, I think, of the book, is this idea of ratcheting culture. So the thing which most other animals don't seem to be able to do is build generation by generation ways of keeping the things that we've learned in the previous generation and building on them. So in chimpanzees, for example, uh, it doesn't go beyond the particular kinds of tools and ways of using those tools, whether they be stones or sticks in a particular population. It never builds in the next generation to 
something that is even greater. And that's something that does seem to happen in humans. We have a way of preserving our achievements in ways that the next generation can benefit. And that, I think, perhaps is the thing that makes us unique. It's this ratcheting of culture that allows us to take it to new levels. And we don't have to start from scratch with each generation. We can build on what our predecessors have already found. Hmm. Fascinating. So just the ability to document the living group's experience, to pass it on so the next generation can build on it. And that's the difference. And the documenting, of course, predates documents. Uh, it's only very recently in human history that we've moved from the oral tradition. And of course, in many cultures, the oral tradition and the stories that one generation tells the next are the very important way that ideas and culture are transmitted. Okay. And there's no evidence um, in any species in the animal kingdom that that's occurring. Is that correct? Yes, but not in a way that ratchets. So there is plenty of evidence of learning from the previous generation and maybe a particular kind of learning. So birdsong is one of those that has been studied most. And for many species of bird, the young bird needs to hear the song of its father, if it's a male, in order to get the song right. And reared in the absence of recordings or the presence of the father or another male of a species, the song doesn't come out right. So that's a very particular kind of learning. One of the fascinating things is that some of the genes that are involved in the learning of the song by the young bird, and I think is it the fox 2p uh, gene, uh, is, or, or the fox uh, p2 gene. So, uh, so just to go back, so just with bird songs, so one of the fascinating things with the way that young birds learn the song of their father is one of the genes that is uh, involved in learning that song is a gene called FOXP2. And in fascinating work in the last 20 years, a number of researchers have shown that human language acquisition also involves that same gene. And so in the way that humans have to learn speech, if there are genetic mutations in that gene, we find it more difficult uh, to learn speech. There are ways that the learning in birds and the learning in humans, when it comes to language, are related. So I think it's just another example of the way that we can learn a lot about human behavior by studying other animals. But at the same time, there are still mysteries in our own behavior that remain particularly and uniquely human. Yeah. Now, conceding that each species has its own characteristics and that intelligence means something different and is, an, as, and is important in a different way in each species, even if we accept that. Uh, do you think there's something qualitatively different mm. about humans that sets them aside from all other species? Or are we just further along the same spectrum? I think this idea of being able to ratchet culture really sets us apart. In other ways, I think it really is quite informative to consider as as being part of the spectrum. And for some features, as it were, we're 
particularly well advanced, in others less so. And I think that's again one of the fascinating things, looking at animals and their senses, to see which senses they have that we simply don't uh, appear to have. Um, echolocation, in a very crude way, shutting your eyes, you can find your, find your way around from the echoes around you. But we can't do anything like a bat. So I think we just um, have to continue to be amazed at what other animals can do, enjoy the things that we can. But your contention would be then that we're just along the same spectrum rather than something totally qualitatively different, like some alien species that just came off somewhere else. Completely. We're just another animal. And I think that's where Darwin was among the many who were groundbreaking in saying that we are just another kind of animal. We're a special kind of animal, but we are animals nonetheless, and that we can learn a great deal about how we work by studying other animals. Now, just to point back, we were talking about dolphins earlier. Is there actual evidence of ongoing increased acidification of the oceans? And is, does that have an effect on the marine life in it? So, so you're asking about uh, ocean acidification. And yes, this really is a problem. As humans uh, burn fossil fuels, we're releasing a lot of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere at a rate, uh, at a rate uh, previously um, not occurring. So we're changing the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere at a very fast rate. About a third of the carbon dioxide that goes into the atmosphere dissolves in the oceans and it brings down their pH, it lowers their pH. And over the next 80 or so years, it's going to dramatically reduce the pH. Now, the reason this matters is that the sense of smell in aquatic organism uh, is itself affected by pH. Now, some work in the early uh, 2010s suggested that coral reef fish had their behavior changed. So they no longer found their way home and they uh, responded badly, you know, it was inappropriately to predators. They swam towards predators. And it looked as though ocean acidification was going to directly affect the behavior of fish and other marine organisms. Now, recent work earlier this year uh, from, from other research groups suggests that might not be the case. Uh, the work has turned out to be very hard to replicate. But I think we still should be concerned, and there are so many reasons for tackling climate change, and in particular, the underlying cause, this rise in carbon dioxide from human activity. But I think we still should uh, be worried about what effect it might have on the senses of aquatic animals. Perfect. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Wyatt.